Chapter 3 of A New England Girlhood by Lucy Larkham. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 3 The Hymn Book. Almost the first decided taste in my life was the love of hymns. Committing them to memory was as natural to me as breathing. I followed my mother about with the hymn book. Watts and Select, reading or repeating them to her while she was busy with her baking or ironing, and she was always a willing listener. She was fond of devotional reading, but had a little time for it, and it pleased her to know that so small a child as I really cared for the hymns she loved. I learned most of them at meeting. I was told to listen to the minister, but as I did not understand a word he was saying, I gave it up and took refuge in the hymn book with the conscious purpose of trying to sit still. I turned the leaves over as noiselessly as possible to avoid the dreaded reproof of my mother's keen blue eyes, and sometimes I learned two or three hymns in a forenoon or an afternoon. Finding it so easy, I thought I would begin at the beginning and learn the whole. There were about a thousand of them included in the Psalms, the first, second, and third books, and the select hymns, but I had learned to read before I had any knowledge of counting up numbers, and so was blissfully ignorant of the magnitude of my undertaking. I did not, I think, change my resolution, because there were so many, but because, little as I was, I discovered that there were hymns and hymns. Some of them were so prosy that the words would not stay in my memory at all, so I concluded that I would learn only those I liked. I had various reasons for my preferences. With some, I was caught by a melodious echo or a sonorous ring. With others, by the hint of a picture or a story, or by some sacred suggestion that attracted me, I knew not why. Of some, I was fond just because I misunderstood them, and of these I made a free version in my mind as I murmured them over. One of my first favorites was certainly rather a singular choice for a child of three or four years. I had no idea of its meaning, but made up a little story out of it, with myself as the heroine. It began with the words, Come, humble sinner, in whose breast a thousand thoughts revolve. The second stanza read thus, I'll go to Jesus, though my sin hath like a mountain rose. I did not know that this last line was bad grammar, but thought that the sin in question was something pretty that looked like a mountain rose. Mountains I had never seen. They were a glorious dream to me. And a rose that grew on a mountain must surely be prettier than any of our red wild roses on the hill, sweet as they were. I would pluck that rose and carry it up the mountainside into the temple where the king sat and would give it to him. And then he would touch me with his scepter and let me through into a garden full of flowers. There was no garden in the hymn. I suppose the rose made me invent one. But it did read, I'll know his courts, I'll enter in, whatever may oppose. And so I fancied there would be lions in the way, as there were in the pilgrims at the House Beautiful. But I should not be afraid of them. They would no doubt be chained. The last verse began with the lines, I can but perish if I go, I am resolved to try. And my heart beat a brave echo to the words as I started off in fancy on a pilgrim's progress of my own, 
a happy little dreamer telling nobody the secret of my imaginary journey taken in sermon time. Usually the hymns for which I cared most suggested nature in some way, flowers, trees, skies, and stars. When I repeated, There everlasting spring abides and never withering flowers, I thought of the faintly flushed anemones and white and blue violets, the dear little short-lived children of our shivering spring. They also would surely be found in that heavenly land, blooming on through the cloudless, endless year. And I seemed to smell the spiciness of bayberry and sweet fern and wild roses and meadowsweet that grew in fragrant jungles up and down the hillside back of the meeting house in another verse which I dearly loved. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweet before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. We were allowed to take a little nosegay to meeting sometimes, a pink or two. Pinks were pink then, not red, nor white, nor even double, and a sprig of chamomile, and their blended perfume still seems to be a part of the June Sabbath mornings long passed away. When the choir sang of seas of heavenly rest, a breath of salt wind came in with the words through the open door from the sheltered waters of the bay, so softly blue and so lovely. I always wondered how a world could be beautiful where there was no more sea. I concluded that the hymn and the text could not really contradict each other, that there must be something like the sea in heaven after all. One stanza that I used to croon over gave me the feeling of being rocked in a boat on a strange and beautiful ocean, from whose far-off shores the sunrise beckoned. At anchor laid remote from home, toiling, I cry, sweet spirit, come. Celestial breeze no longer stay, but spread my sails and speed my way. Some of the chosen hymns of my infancy the world recognizes among its noblest treasures of sacred song. That one of Doddridge's, beginning with Ye golden lamps of heaven, farewell, made me feel as if I had just been gazing in at some window of the many mansions above. Ye stars are but the shining dust of my divine abode. Had I not known that ever since I was a baby? But the light does not stream down even into a baby's soul with equal brightness all the time. Earth draws her dark curtains too soon over the windows of heaven, and the little children fall asleep in her dim rooms and forget their visions. That majestic hymn of Cowper's, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, was one of my first and dearest. It reminded me of the rolling thunder through the sky, and understood as little as the thunder itself, which my mother told me was God's voice, so that I bent my ear and listened, expecting to hear it shaped into words, it still did give me the idea of the presence of one infinite being that thrilled me with reverent awe. And this was one of the best lessons taught in the Puritan school, the lesson of reverence, the certainty that life meant looking up to something, to someone greater than ourselves, to a life far above us, which yet enfolded ours. The thought of God when he was first spoken of to me seemed as natural as the thought of my father and mother. That he should be invisible did not seem strange, for I could not with my eyes see through the sky, beyond which I suppose he lived. But it was easy to believe that he could look down and see me, and that he knew all about me. 
we were taught very early to say, Thou God seest me, and it was one of my favorite texts. Heaven seemed nearer because somebody I loved was up there looking at me. A baby is not afraid of its father's eyes. The first real unhappiness I remember to have felt was when someone told me one day that I did not love God. I insisted almost tearfully that I did, but I was told that if I did truly love him, I should always be good. I knew that I was not that, and the feeling of sudden orphanage came over me like a bewildering cloud. Yet I was sure that I loved my father and mother, even when I was naughty. Was he harder to please than they? Then I heard of a dreadful dark somewhere, the horror of which was that it was away from him. What if I should wake some morning and find myself there? Sometimes I did not dare to go to sleep for that dread, and the thought was too awful to speak of to anybody. Baby that I was, I shut my lips in a sort of reckless despair and thought that if I could not be good, I might as well be naughty and enjoy it. But somehow I could not enjoy it. I felt sorry and ashamed and degraded whenever I knew that I had been cross or selfish. I heard them talk about Jesus as if he were a dead man, one who died a great while ago, whose death made a great difference to us. I could not understand how. It seemed like a lovely story, the loveliest in the world, but it sounded as if it were only a story, even to those who repeated it to me, something that had happened far away in the past. But one day, a strange minister came into the Sabbath school in our little chapel and spoke to us children about him, oh, so differently. Children, he said, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He loves you and wants you to love him. He is your best friend, and he will show you how to be good. My heart beat fast. I could hardly keep back the tears. The New Testament, then, did really mean what it said. Jesus said he would come back again and would always be with those who loved him. He is alive. He loves me. He will tell me how to be good. I said it over to myself, but not to anybody else. I was sure that I loved him. It was like a beautiful secret between us two. I felt him so alive and so near. He wanted me to be good, and I could be, I would be, for his sake. That stranger never knew how his loving word had touched a child's heart. The doors of the father's house were open wide again by the only hand that holds the key. The world was all bright and fresh once more. It was as if the May sun had suddenly wakened the flowers in an overshadowed wayside nook. I tried long afterward, thinking that it was my duty, to build up a wall of difficult doctrines over my spring blossoms, as if they needed protection. But the sweet light was never wholly stifled out, though I did not always keep my face turned towards it. And I know now that just to let his life-giving smile shine into the soul is better than any of the theories we can invent about him, and that only so can young or old receive the kingdom of God as a little child. I believe that one great reason for a child's love of him, such as mine was, is that they are either addressed to a person, to the divine person, or they bring him before the mind in some distinct way, instead of being written upon a subject like a sermon. To make him real is the only way to make our own spirits real to ourselves. I think more gratefully now of the verses I learned from the Bible and the hymn book than of almost anything that came to me in that time of beginnings. 
The whole hymn book was not for me then any more than the whole Bible. I took from both only what really belonged to me. To be among those who found in them the true sources of faith and adoration was like breathing in my native air, though I could not tell anything about the land from which I had come. Much that was put in the way of us children to climb by, we could only stumble over, but around and above the roughnesses of the road, the pure atmosphere of worship was felt everywhere, the healthiest atmosphere for a child's soul to breathe in. I had learned a great many hymns before the family took any notice of it. When it came to the knowledge of my most motherly sister, Emily, I like to call her that, for she was as fond of early rising as Chaucer's heroine, up rose the sun and up rose Emily. And it is her own name, with a very slight change. She undertook to see how many my small memory would contain. She promised me a new book when I should have learned fifty, and that when I could repeat any one of a hundred hymns, she would teach me to write. I earned the book when I was about four years old. I think it was a collection of some of Jane Taylor's verses. For Infant Minds was part of the title. I did not care for it, however, nearly so much as I did for the old thumb-worn Watson Select Hymn. Before I was five, I had gone beyond the stipulated hundred. A proud and happy child I was when I was permitted to dip a goose quill into an inkstand and make written letters instead of printing them with a pencil on a slate. My sister prepared a neat little writing book for me and told me not to make a mark in it, except when she was near to tell me what to do. In my self-sufficient impatience to get out of pothooks and trammels into real letters and words, I disobeyed her injunction and disfigured the pages with numerous tell-tale blots. Then I hid the book away under the garret eaves and refused to bring it to light again. I was not allowed to resume my studies in penmanship for some months in consequence. But when I did learn to write, Emily was my teacher, and she made me take great pains with my P's and Q's. It is always a mistake to cram a juvenile mind. A precocious child is certainly as far as possible from being an interesting one. Children ought to be children and nothing else. But I am not sorry that I learned to read when so young because there were years of my childhood that came after when I had very little time for reading anything. To learn hymns was not only a pastime but a pleasure, which it would have been almost cruel to deprive me of. It did not seem to me as if I learned them, but as if they just gave themselves to me while I read them over, as if they and the unseen things they sang about became a part of me. Some of the old hymns did seem to lend us wings, so full were they of aspiration and hope and courage. To a little child, reading them or hearing them sung was like being caught up in a strong man's arms to gaze upon some wonderful landscape. These climbing and flying hymns, how well I remember them, although they were among the first I ever learned. They are of the kind that can never wear out. We all know them by their first lines. Awake, our souls, away our fears. Up to the hills I lift mine eyes. There is a land of pure delight. Rise, my soul, and stretch thy wings, thy better portion trace. How the meeting-house rafters used to ring to that last hymn, sung to the tune of Amsterdam. Sometimes it seemed as if the very roof was lifted off, nay, the roof of the sky itself, 
as if the music had burst an entrance for our souls into the heaven of heavens. I love to learn the glad hymns, and there were scores of them. They come flocking back through the years like birds that are full of the music of an immortal spring. Come, let us join our cheerful songs with angels round the throne. Love divine, all love excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Hark, the song of jubilee, loud as mighty thunders roar, or the fullness of the sea when it breaks upon the shore. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent shall reign. Hallelujah, let the word echo round the earth and main. Ah, that word hallelujah. It seemed to express all the joy of spring mornings and clear sunshine and bursting blossoms, blended with all that I guessed of the songs of angels and with all that I heard and believed in my fledgling soul of the glorious one who was born in a manger and died on a cross, that he might reign in human hearts as a king. I wondered why the people did not sing hallelujah more. It seemed like a word sent straight down to us out of heaven. I did not like to learn the sorrowful hymns, though I did it when they were given to me as a task, such as Hark from the Tombs and Lord, what a wretched land is this that yields us no supply. I suppose that these mournful strains had their place, but sometimes the transition was too sudden from the outside of the meeting house to the inside, from the sunshine and bobolinks and buttercups of the merry May Day world to the sad strains that chanted of this barren land, this veil of tears, this wilderness of distress and woe. It led us light-hearted children too quickly down from the higher key of mirth to which our careless thoughts were pitched. We knew that we were happy, and sorrow to us was unreal. But somehow we did often get the impression that it was our duty to try to be sorrowful, and that we could not be entirely good without being rather miserable. And I am afraid that, in my critical little mind, I looked upon it as an affectation on the part of the older people to speak of life in this doleful way. I thought that they really knew better. It seemed to me that it must be delightful to grow up and learn things and do things and be very good indeed, better than children could possibly know how to be. I knew afterwards that my elders were sometimes at least sincere in their sadness, for with many of them life must have been a hard struggle. But when they shook their heads and said, Child, you will not be so happy by and by. You are seeing your best days now. I still doubted. I was born with the blessing of a cheerful temperament. And while that is not enough to sustain any of us through the inevitable sorrows that all must share, it would have been most unnatural and ungrateful in me to think of the earth as a dismal place when everything without and within was trying to tell me that this good and beautiful world belongs to God. I took exception to some verses in many of the hymns that I loved the most. I had my own mental reservations with regard even to that glorious chant of the ages, Jerusalem, my happy home, name ever dear to me. I always wanted to skip one half of the third stanza as it stood in our hymn book, where congregations ne'er break up and Sabbaths have no end. I did not want it to be Sabbath day always. I was conscious of a pleasure in the thought of games and frolics and coming weekday delights that would flit across my mind 
even when I was studying my hymns or trying to listen to the minister. And I did want the congregation to break up sometime. Indeed, in those bright spring days, the last hymn in the afternoon always sounded best, because with it came the opening of the doors into the outside air and the pouring in of a mingled scent of sea winds and apple blossoms, like an invitation out into the freedom of the beach, the hillsides, the fields and gardens and orchards. In all this I felt as if I were very wicked. I was afraid that I loved earth better than I did heaven. Nevertheless, I always did welcome that last hymn, announced to be sung with the doxology, usually in long meter to the tune of Old Hundred. There were certain mysterious preliminaries, the rustling of singing book leaves, the sliding of the short screen curtains before the singers along by their clinking rings, and now and then a premonitory groan or squeak from the bass viol or violin, as if the instruments were clearing their throats, and finally the sudden uprising of that long row of heads in the singing seats. My tallest and prettiest grown-up sister, Louise, stood there among them, and of all those girlish, blooming faces, I thought hers the very handsomest. But she did not open her lips wide enough to satisfy me. I could not see that she was singing at all. To stand up there and be one of the choirs seemed to me very little short of promotion to the ranks of cherubim and seraphim. I quite envied that tall, pretty sister of mine. I was sure that I should open my mouth wide if I could only be in her place. Alas, the years proved that, much as I loved the hymns, there was no music in me to give them voice, except to very indulgent ears. Some of us must wait for the best human gifts until we come to our heavenly places. Our natural desire for musical utterance is perhaps a prophecy that in a perfect world we shall all know how to sing. But it is something to feel music if we cannot make it. That in itself is a kind of unconscious singing. As I think back to my childhood, it seems to me as if the air was full of hymns, as it was of the fragrance of clover blossoms and the songs of bluebirds and robins and the deep undertone of the sea, and the purity, the calmness, and the coolness of the dear old Sabbath days seems lingering yet in the words of those familiar hymns whenever I hear them sung. Their melody penetrates deep into my life, assuring me that I have not left the green pastures and the still waters of my childhood very far behind me. There is something at the heart of a true song or hymn which keeps the heart young that listens. It is like a breeze from the eternal hills, like the west wind of spring, never by a breath less balmy and clear for having poured life into the old generations of earth for thousands of years, a spiritual freshness which has nothing to do with time or decay. End of chapter 3